Let's come before our God in in prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning because we need you and we need your guidance in this desert place where we roam. We too, like the children of Israel before us, need you daily. We need to come to you to receive the manna that sustains us the water of your spirit that gives us life and to receive your guidance for all our steps. Lord God, forgive us when we have depended on everything else to give us life, to give us security, to give us direction. This morning as we come to draw close and to worship you, As we come to look into your word, help us to open our hearts to you, that you might look into them and point out to us the things there that need to change. Come, Holy Spirit, take us captive that we might be free. Come, Holy Spirit, break our hearts that they might be whole. We pray now together the prayer that you, Lord Jesus, taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Sam is going to come and bring us our reading. She's told me that she's practiced these very hard words in this reading today. Paper would have been easier. Anyhow. Okay, good morning. The reading today is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Water from the rock. The whole Israelite community set set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. 
So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray together as we turn to reflect on God's word. Lord, we acknowledge that you are here, that you have come close to us, and that you desire to speak to us and with us. So we want to say, Lord, your servants are listening. Speak now. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you look at religion and reality in general? I get the impression that it's the pervading worldview today, even amongst church-going people, that God, if we believe in God at all, is some distant, unknowable force somewhere out there in the universe who has just left us to get on with things as best we can. And so when it comes to making decisions, moral decisions about what is right and what is wrong, or decisions about direction in life, whether as individuals or as a society as a whole, it seems as if we're left to our own devices, at, at least in, in that pervading worldview. And at the end of the day, with that worldview, we don't get very far in making any decisions because it all comes down to a majority opinion against a minority one or your opinion against my opinion. Neither is right or neither is wrong, neither is any better or any worse. And that, however, is not the biblical way of religion or of looking at reality in general. In the Bible, the Creator God is real. and He is intimate. The Creator God is a person, and He wants to engage in relationship with other persons. In the Bible, God speaks. He, he speaks directly to people. And He speaks through Scripture, and He speaks through chosen spokespersons and through leaders. In the Bible, God speaks about everyday mundane things. And he also speaks about the deep truths that are behind the universe. The God that we encounter in the Bible wants to be heard. And the God that we encounter in the Bible wants to hear from us. He wants to lead his people to be blessed and to be a blessing to others. If we are to be individuals or a church that please God and function as we should, I believe that we need to be countercultural. We need to push against that pervading worldview and we need to take on a different worldview. However, that is very, very hard. It means rejecting our natural inclinations, 
It means rejecting a way of looking at the world that we have been indoctrinated with since we were very young. And a worldview that is still pressing upon us every day in school, on Facebook, on television, in the newspapers, and in conversations with friends and family. To change our worldview means rejecting much of what we are told and learning to see things in a different way. Learning to see things with a new lens that is given to us when we take Christ as our Savior and our Lord and as we daily study him and walk with him in his ways. And we're not the first, nor are we the last generation of God's people to struggle to change our worldview, if indeed we are struggling to do that. This is so clearly what is happening in the story of Exodus. The people throughout the story of Exodus are, are challenged to get Egypt out of their way of thinking, just as God has surely got them, body and soul, so decisively out of Egypt. In this morning's passage, we have the final episode in this section of, of three parallel stories from the desert journeys, where there is this threefold pattern. In these stories, there is a need for food or water, and then the people complain and their complaints are directed at Moses and Aaron or both of them. And then finally, God graciously provides what is needed. Here in this third episode, there's an obvious escalation of the tension between the people and Moses. Whereas at, at Mara, in that place where the people complained about not having water to drink, and all they found was bitter water. And in that other place where they grumbled about not having enough food, the word that is used is that they grumbled. But here in our translation, it says that they quarrel with Moses. Other translations more accurately say that they dispute with Moses. And the Hebrew word translated quarrel or dispute is the same word that is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe what happens in a court case. So what's happening here, in effect, is that the people are bringing charges against Moses. And they are serious charges. So serious that Moses fears for his life. He cries out to God... And he says of the people to God, that they are almost ready to stone me. He's on the verge of being executed. As in the two other episodes of complaint, Moses again tells the people that it is God they are grumbling against and quarreling with and, and not him. And he further says that by Quarreling with him, they are putting God to the test. 
Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, even though it's only seven verses long. And I'd like this morning for us to drill down into one aspect of the story, the fact that the children of Israel are putting God to the test. According to the text, putting God to the test is the vital issue here. It's the nub of the problem between the people and their God. Both Moses and God sum up what is happening in this whole section of the story with two words, quarreling with and testing of God. In verse 7, this place where this episode happens is given two new names, Meribah and Massa, quarreling and testing. The place is given these names because the quarreling and the testing are, are so significant. God wants his people to remember what has happened here. When later generations ask mom or dad why this place is called by such peculiar names, mom and dad will have to confess that, sadly, this was the place where our grumbling came to a head. This is where your ancestors quarreled and tested God. The testing of God, so it appears, is a grave sin on the part of the Israelites. Later in the journey, as recorded in Numbers, as the people travel on the other side of Sinai, God says that since at that point the Israelites have tested him ten times, their generation was not going to be able to enter the promised land. The testing of God is that severe. The testing meant that this whole generation would not receive God's promised blessing. Later in the scriptures, in the Psalms, and in the writings of the prophets, the people of God are reminded of what happened at Massa and Meribah. Remember. And they're warned to be careful not to provoke God in this same way again, not to test God. And in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, Christian people are also warned against putting God to the test like the children of Israel did so long before in the wilderness. So the sin of testing is to be avoided. And might testing God be a sin that we too could fall into? And how can we be careful that we don't fall into that most severe of sins? Well, I guess the first step in making sure that we don't fall into this sin is to understand what it is and what it is not. And I think sometimes we are confused about that. Testing, in fact, happened in the passages that we looked at previously in the last three weeks. There in chapters 15 and 16. But there in those passages, it was God who was testing the Israelites. And that, that seemed to be okay. That testing, we are told, was a good thing. 
when we explored the testing of the people two weeks ago, we, we came to the conclusion that testing in chapters 15 and 16 didn't mean that God was trying to pass or fail the children of Israel or that he was trying to see what they were made of. God already knew what these people were like. He already knew that they would fail at every hurdle. But by testing them, God does in chapter 16, God was trying to help them, to help them understand what they were like. As we said two Sundays ago, by testing them, God was helping them to have some self-awareness and God-awareness. By testing them, God wanted them to see just how fickle they were and just how more used to the life of slavery in Egypt that they were than they perhaps had thought themselves. By testing them, God was also helping them to be God aware. He wanted them to understand that even in the face of their grumbling, he was a gracious, manna-giving God. Even in the face of their grumbling, he was committed to them. And he was committed to his plan of bringing them and the rest of the world to blessing and to freedom. Now, my question this morning is, is it always wrong to complain about something God is doing or object to a situation that we find ourselves in? Is it always wrong to test God? Are we meant to just grin and bear our pain and confusion and keep quiet about our complaints? Is God like some tyrant parent who says, Son, don't you dare ever question me. Don't test me. Is that the God of the Bible? Well, that can't be the answer. It's not the God I find in the pages of both my Old and my New Testament. In other places in the Bible, we see God's people complaining about things all the time. Complaining about situations that befall them. And they are often commended for their complaining. The Psalms are are full of complaints and hard-hitting questions of God. And as an aside, I've been reading quite a bit about Ukraine this week. And I've been directed many times to the Psalms. And they are just so pertinent to their situation. If anyone could complain to God about what's going on today, it's the people of Ukraine. There in the Psalms, we find the same questions that they are probably asking. Why do bad people get away with their crimes? Why do bad things happen to innocent people? Why isn't God's will done on earth as it is in heaven? Where are you, God? Why don't you come down and rescue us? These are all very legitimate questions. They are questions that are part of our scripture. They are questions we're 
meant to use as part of our worship. Complaints are the bread and butter of God's faithful people who live in an unfair and a messed up world. Complaints can be good and they can be wholesome. And it turns out that there is even a kind of testing of God that can be good. There's a kind of testing of God that can lead to self-awareness and God-awareness. In the book of the prophet Malachi, God encourages people to test him with regards to making offerings. There in Malachi, he promises the people that if they faithfully give their offerings, that he will respond by pouring out blessing on them. And then over in the book of Isaiah, in the time of national crisis, God asks King Ahaz, the king of Israel at the time, to test him. He asks Ahaz to to ask him for a sign of what he will do, but Ahaz, in an act of feigned piety, refuses, saying, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah responds that by not testing God, Ahaz is in fact trying God's patience. What are we to make of this? What's the difference between the complaining of the children of Israel, which is condemned there in the desert, and the good kind of complaining and testing that is encouraged both by Micah and Isaiah and that we see elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. Well, the main difference is that the testing that pleases God is directed to God. And the testing that does not please God is directed at Him. Psalm 62 says, Pour out your hearts to God. It doesn't say pour out your hearts about God. The Israelites in the desert went to Moses. They went to Aaron. They probably complained to their neighbors. Some of them probably just internalized their complaints. But they didn't go to God with their complaints. They didn't go to God with their anger. Complaining about God is the opposite of God-awareness. It is God-denying. Complaining about God denies God's character. For you see, God in his deepest heart longs for us to come close to him, especially in times of need. In testing God in the way the Israelites did in the desert... We not only do the opposite of God-awareness, but we also do the opposite of self-awareness. We deny ourselves. We deny the fact that we are created in God's image, that we are meant to be in relationship with Him, that we're meant to come to Him when we are in need. What I think we can and we should take away from this passage and the example of the people of God here is not, don't ever dare question God. 
But it's just the opposite. Do question God. Follow the encouragement of the psalmist. Pour out your hearts to him. This indeed is what God longs for. This indeed is how he might grow closer to us and us to him. God is not an impersonal force somewhere out there in the universe. He is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he has come close. He has taken on our flesh and walked the earth as a human being. And he longs for us to come close to him. In devotion, yes, but also with our hearts and even with our complaints. On rare occasions, I've been privileged to get a glimpse of that kind of honest testing of God that can be so life-affirming. Just last week, I read an article about a young woman that I, I think that I mentioned to you before. Her name is Jane. There's her picture. Some of you might know her. She became quite a, a famous singer lately. She was on America's Got Talent, and she got the golden buzzer from Simon Cowell. Like million, millions of others around the world, Jane has suffered from cancer. She was 30 when she was diagnosed. And Jane had everything to live for. She was talented. She had a husband and a career. But all that came crashing down with that diagnosis of, of cancer. But in Jane's despair, she found her voice and she used it not only to sing, but also to talk to God. And here are some of the things that Jane said of her relationship with God through her painful journey. Jane said, I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will, he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say, I, I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, that God can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling constantly with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes with apologies, gifts, questions, demands. And sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I have called God a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer that I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. 
Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow. Squinted to read the message that he wrote for me in the grout on the bathroom floor as I lay there in agony. And his message was, I'm sad too. And here's where I see an obvious connection with our passage. Jane wrote, here's one thing I do know. When it comes to pain... God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. And what she meant was that God is more a giver than a taker. She says he doesn't take away my darkness. He adds his light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water doesn't cure my loneliness he comes near so why do we believe that when we are in pain it must mean that God is far no it is the pain that often makes us aware of how very close God really is and here's another quote from a a commentator on this passage that we've been looking at this morning. God shows he cares, not by giving us what we want when we want it, but he shows he cares by using what we want to teach us how to want him more. Now, Jane died last week. But Jane died a friend of God. Jane died having learned to want him above all else. And I believe Jane got all that she wanted for. Here in this sacrament of communion, we find God as Jane did. More of a giver than a taker. In our darkness, he gives us light. In our loneliness, he draws near. In our sin and brokenness, he brings forgiveness and healing. If the cross to which this sacrament points says nothing else, it says this. God comes near to give himself. God comes near taking on our pain and giving us his life. Life that begins now, even in these desert places, but life that continues on into a garden city of his promised coming kingdom. Peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. We turn now to our prayers, and today we pray for the people of Ukraine. These prayers are taken from uh, the organization Prayer 24-7, and there's a response. You see it 
written on the, the screen there. When I say Kyrie eleison, then we repeat what's on the screen. Let us pray. Father God, King of all nations, we cry out to you now for the people of Ukraine. We ask you to rescue those who are vulnerable from the hands of their enemies, that they may live without fear before you all their days. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. Lord of lords and Prince of Peace, our politicians are predicting the biggest war in Europe since 1945. And we simply cry out to you urgently to write another story in our time. Thwart the dark machinations of evil men. Give wisdom beyond human wisdom to peacemakers seeking an equitable and less violent way. May politicians exercise the wisdom from above, which is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, and full of mercy. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. Holy Spirit, we pray for the church in Ukraine, a nation in which 70% of the population call themselves Christian. Give our many brothers and sisters in that nation courage in this crisis, that they may proclaim the good news of your kingdom, that they may bind up broken hearts and bring comfort to all who mourn. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. You, Lord, make wars cease to the end of the earth. You break bows. You shatter spears and burn shields with fire. And so we ask you now to save the lives of many people in Ukraine. Make a peace that is strong and not weak. De-escalate this crisis. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, but you, Lord, are our rock. You are our fortress and our deliverer. Our hope is in you. And so we address the nations now in the name of Jesus, we say, be still and know God. He shall be exalted among the nations. He shall be exalted in the earth. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. For we pray these prayers 
In the name of the Prince of Peace, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.